0: In the future, I really hope to see people being very accommodating and inclusive of refugees.
1: What I think is that Europe set the camp on fire, really, in their inadequate response.
2: They just want safety and start a new life, and we need to make them welcome.
3: Hello, and welcome to Switchboard, Varsity's flagship podcast. My name is Isabel Roberts, and I'm
4: Maddie Fisher. September saw the highest number of migrant channel crossings this year, resulting in increasing media coverage on the refugee crisis.
3: The government has adopted an increasingly hostile narrative and approach, with Home Secretary Priti Patel pledging to make the English Channel, quote, unviable.
4: And on the 5th of September, far-right and anti-migrant protesters assembled in Dover, chanting slogans including, We want our country back.
3: So today, we take a look at the personal stories that lie behind the headlines, speaking both to students at Cambridge from a refugee background and to those who are working to support and improve the system for refugees.
2: Close your eyes and imagine. It is Sunday, 17th September 1995. Cloudy morning in a small village in the valley of a heroic Grimmage Mountain in the northwestern part of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Long line of cars, horse carriages, bikes all of them refugees leaving their villages and going into unknown, not knowing where or how far they can go with the only goal to save their lives. Among them is a 10-year-old boy sitting in the back of a car surrounded with some clothes, some pots and pans, bed linen, collection of family photos, and some of his books. He spent some time that morning convincing his mom to spare some of that space in a small car for his books. At the end, the agreement was made That's okay, under the condition that his brother can also pack his stereo and some LPs and cassettes. In November of the same year, that same boy is walking back from school in Serbia, where family found a refuge, crying because in his first week back to school, he got the lowest mark in maths. He didn't know how to write a million because he missed two and a half months of school. Fast forward the timeline to 14th of May 2016, and that same boy has just been awarded PhD in physics from Cambridge University. That little boy was me, Milan Vorocinic.
4: That was Milan, a Cambridge alumnus, telling us about his experience fleeing Bosnia and Herzegovina as a child. Still today, there are refugees fleeing persecution across the world. Tix-Louis Patik, the founder of Cambridge Must Act, tells us about this organisation and how it supports refugees.
3: So you were volunteering in Lesbos, one of the Egan Islands, um, to support refugees between June and July this year. Can you tell me what the situation there is like, particularly with regards to coronavirus? In terms of COVID provisions,
1: um, I mean, there was nothing. Like There was no... Uh, no no respect for the distancing because it's impossible to in a camp which is so overcrowded like Moria and um, at the time when I was there there was around 15,000 people living um, in and around Moria camp and it was designed and built for 3,000 so you can imagine distancing is impossible water wise running water was often not available so telling them to wash their hands um, frequently is a bit of a joke if there's no provisions um, to do so.
3: And so you're very involved with the campaign group Must Act. Can you tell me a little bit about them and why there's a need for them as a group?
1: So Eurotmas Act started back in March and it was basically a group of NGOs and they wrote a uh, a letter to Ulvia Hansen, who's the EU Commissioner for Home Affairs, demanding the evacuation of the Aegean Islands given the precarious situation there. And they received a response from Ulvia and she said... We would do it as the EU, but we don't think there's enough political will and support from around Europe. And that's when they moved into the Cities Must Act campaign to get, yeah, to get local support for evacuation. They also ask for just a a complete reimagining of our migration policy to get rid of the Dublin Agreement, which has created the situation in Greece, to rethink the EU-Turkey Agreement, uh, and basically to just, yeah, have a total new perspective on European migration, because currently it's utterly
3: inhumane. So can you talk to me a bit about the legal problems with the current um, pathways to and within Europe there?
1: Yeah, of course. So what happened is that in 2015, obviously I'm sure many people know, there was huge floods of people coming across um, from Turkey into Greece and then onwards into Europe. And from there, they were able to claim asylum kind of wherever for a while, apart from the UK, where it was very restricted. Germany took in a million people and generally there was a, a kind of a a flow of people through Greece and then into Europe. What happened in 2016 is that a lot of more right-wing politicians really disagreed with what was happening, and so they wanted to stop the flow, and so they uh, created an EU-Turkey deal, part of which created the camps in the Aegean Islands, which are basically closed camps. They're called reception centres. And that's where people can go through their asylum claim. But it just meant there was a huge backlog to the point that people would be waiting in Moria for two and a half years for their asylum case. And even then it could be rejected and they get deported. So going through a lot of pain and struggle and it might not even be fruitful. This is partly to do with also the Dublin Agreement, which is an EU um, legislation, which basically says that you can claim asylum in the first safe country you arrive in. This is problematic because it means that there's no distribution kind of system across Europe. So if if 400,000 people arrive to Greece, Greece has to provide everything for them in theory. And this is unfair, given especially that Greece has its own economic problems.
3: So earlier in this year, in April, you set up an EMA City Charter, Cambridge Must Act. So what kind of lay behind this and what has the response to that been like? It's actually been a really good response.
1: Our focus was on um, change door petitions and so we were hoping that if each city chapter had a change position saying, you know, this city welcomes refugees and um, trying to get councils to pledge a certain number of refugees um, to relocate into the city. The idea was that that would then show Ulvi Johansson that there is this will and it would show um, national politicians that there is this will to take people. So I set up the Facebook group. Um, I set up a change little petition that went really well. We got a thousand signatures in about 36 hours, which was really exciting, and showed you know what we know that Cambridge is actually a very welcoming city for refugees, and it already has got a very active resettlement scheme. And we're not starting from base zero with Cambridge. We're just asking for a bit more and for a bit more consistency. You know they promised to take in 125 refugees over five years, which doesn't seem a lot, but Cambridge is quite small. Um, so that was okay, and they did that, and now it's like they stopped because the five years are over, and there's no reason to stop, given that there's still a lot of need. We are just about launching a new stage of the um, campaign called Cambridge Will Act, the optimists, um, and that will we're actually getting a motion into the general council meeting in October, and for that we require 500 signatures on the website. Um, so the petition on change.org is good as a, as a gesture. But it's not actually can't force anything onto the agenda of meetings, whereas a council, council website petition can literally force a subject onto um, the general meeting, which happens in October. So we've got a month of intense campaigning coming up.
3: We spoke to Noon Fresher Soraya about her background and experience applying to Cambridge. So could you
4: tell me about your family background and the countries that you're from?
0: So starting from my mom's side, they are basically Afghan Pashtuns and then they left Afghanistan during the first Soviet-Afghan war in 1979 and they came to India. Um, There she met my dad, she grew up over there, they got married and then they decided to take another step and move to Oman where I was born. And so naturally growing up, I've had the culture of two countries. I think that has been very badly misrepresented in Western media overall, especially in the politics of refugees and migrants coming to their country.
4: And then why did you decide to apply to Cambridge University? And what was that process like?
0: Um, so the reason I applied to Cambridge was primarily because all my life, Especially when you see this huge disparity of access to basically any premium thing in life And you realize that there is this disparity and the only way you can ever reach to achieve the same level of privilege As some people do is education and the only way I think I Managed to see it or the way I was brought up to see it was to go off to a really good university That would give me a head start in life, especially in 2018 when um. Cambridge University launched this refugee scholarship campaign even though I was not directly eligible for the scholarship, it just made me feel that they were willing to diversify their student background and that people regardless of their background or the cultural beliefs that they do have are welcome over here and that the only way to get to Cambridge is through academic credibility.
4: Tix is the community officer for the Cambridge Refugee Scholarship Campaign this year. She tells us a bit more about it.
1: And so Cambridge Refugee Scholarship Campaign is focusing on the many barriers to education that refugees face. Around 48% of refugees are in education and, you know, compared to the rest of the world statistics, which I think are up around 90, And this just shows that there's a huge disparity and it needs to be addressed. There's a particular barrier to higher education. So the scholarship campaign provide well, it campaigned four years ago to provide ten full ride scholarships to Cambridge University for people from a refugee or asylum seeking background or people who've had their education disrupted by conflict. And now the campaign works to create a welcoming space for the re- for the scholars that do come. Last year was the first round of scholars. So we had ten people from all around the world um, and all different backgrounds coming to study in Cambridge, and the campaign provided them with activities, um, welcoming talks, introductions.
0: I actually saw it in the news. I think it was featured on the BBC, and I was scrolling down through BBC, and I was like, wow. I mean, to me especially, because I did know the amount of scholarships that were quite limited to people who didn't come from the UK, or weren't home students or EU students, and that you do have quite a limited... Branch of financial opportunities and especially when I saw that scholarship announcement it did mean to me a lot because that just meant that a lot of brilliant young people who did not have quite the start, they would have liked to could finally go off to the university of their dreams and basically make a good future for themselves.
4: And is there anything else you think Cambridge could do to be more accommodating towards refugees?
0: It would be good if they could manage to, you know, decolonize this curriculum a bit, especially in subjects like humanities, include more of branches like migrant literature or refugee literature, um, teach theories like post colonization, um, have researchers and lecturers of a diverse background because that just helps you get a different perspective on things. and helps you grapple with issues complex issues in a way that you might not have before especially if you don't come from that background i think that could be quite helpful and even um and a, a sort of tip for the international office actually especially with covid-19 a lot of visa applications and visa offices in countries such as the mena have been shut down and Getting a visa is quite difficult and quite a lengthy process because, I've, for example, I've applied for a visa since the past one month and I've still not got it because obviously the, the visa office is like plagued with the number of applications. But it would be helpful if the home office could, as a rule, make it easier for refugees and asylum seekers to get their visa fast, just so that they're able to go to the university of their region.
4: I think those are such important suggestions for making the university more accessible and and welcoming for international students and refugees. Broadening out our discussion, what assumptions about refugees do you believe are inaccurate? And how do you feel about the kind of UK government's increasingly hostile narrative about refugees?
0: Um, I think one of the biggest things that genuinely annoys me and gets on my nerves is this whole narrative of illegal refugees i mean it's always spoken about but still i mean i think on a broader public scale people just don't seem to comprehend why that is such a wrong term to use especially because the word illegal has got such deep negative connotations and the moment you associate it with a group of people i think the general public are naturally going to have antipathy towards them and having the term illegal refugee just undermines any amount of support you could have for asylum seekers or the process or any refugee campaigns.
4: We now speak to Tiggs again, who tells us about her reaction to the Moria fire.
3: On the night of Tuesday, the 8th of September, news broke that a fire had spread through Moria Camp Lesbos, displacing nearly 13,000 people and destroying up to 80% of their possessions. So how did you feel when you heard the news?
1: I was in shock, but not surprised. Um, I was up to a half three that night receiving messages um, from refugees who live in the camp that I was friends with when I was working there in June and July. So it was a pretty traumatic night. Not as traumatic for me, of course, as um, for everyone there. But yeah, just receiving voice notes and pictures of terror and, um, and panic and just total chaos. So that was... Yeah, pretty. I was in shock for that reason. I wasn't surprised because what's been happening in Moria, it was a disaster waiting to happen. And we've been saying this for six months as Europe must act and saying we have to act now before this kind of thing happens. What I think is that Europe set the camp on fire, really, in their inadequate response. And no one actually knows yet. There's an ongoing investigation into who started the fire, but it's clear to me that it's not about who literally lit the flame. It's about who who put all the kindling in. And that was definitely um, Europe and our... Failure to respond to a lot of people in need.
3: Yeah, and even now our response, again as part of Europe too, that has been pretty, pretty poor. The UK hasn't committed to yeah. taking anyone, and obviously a lot of um, volunteers are concerned that what happened in Moria camp could happen in any of the other camps as well. So
1: one of the triggers for that was COVID entering into the camp. So for a long time there wasn't actually any COVID positive cases in Moria um, and it was about five days before the fire that the first case hit and then suddenly there was 35 obviously uh, because the the conditions there mean that it spreads very quickly and I think that was kind of the last straw really and again we'd warned about it as Europe must act since since Covid struck Europe really and no one listened.
4: Tix's campaigning calls for European countries to give asylum to refugees Yet even when refugees arrive at their host country, especially to the UK, they still often experience financial and social problems. Milan talks to us about this and the charity campaign he's involved in that aims to address this.
3: And so then in September this year, you took part in British Red Cross's Miles for Refugees. So can you tell me a bit about that and what motivated you to do that?
2: So during the whole, this craziness of COVID this year, I started cycling much more. I saw that there was a challenge for that for the next month of September, being miles for refugees, and actually then explored a bit more and saw that that's actually something that's organized centrally by British Red Cross in order to fundraise for refugees in the UK. And it kind of coincided very well, because I was anyway thinking in in August, that the 17th September this year would be exactly 25 years since we took refuge from our home village. And I kind of wanted to mark it in some way because I think it is important for myself personally and also for people to know that refugees are just normal people. Uh, They are in that situation because they were in a way in a wrong place uh, at the wrong time. So when I saw that, I was like, this actually is all combining really well. I wanted to do something. There is actually this campaign by British Red Cross. So then I started and committed to actually cycle 250 kilometers and to actually fundraise 250 pounds. And I'm quite amazed, to be honest. I'm at the moment at 1,300. So it's like way more than I actually expected.
3: British Red Cross do a lot of work raising awareness and campaigning about the lack or gaps in support that refugees and asylum seekers are offered once they arrive in the UK. So what are your thoughts about the UK's provisions for refugees and asylum seekers once they've arrived and been granted leave here?
2: I did not arrive to the UK as a refugee, so I do not have a personal experience of being a refugee in the UK. Based on, on what I know, I mean, asylum seekers, before they're granted the refugee status, received 54 Pounds a day that needs to cover for their travel, food, toiletries, clothes, everything. That is not much to live on. They're only provided accommodation for free uh, during that period. And also, asylum seekers, until they are given refugee status, they can't work. They don't have any other source of income. That also shows you how those who, straight when they come here and before their status is settled, are really not in a good position their kids will probably feel different in schools than their peers because they clearly can't be provided the same things as their peers. Do I like the language that is being used in the media and by some politicians in the government? No, I don't because those people are not coming here because they want or because it's kind of a a nice holiday to do on a dingley over the channel uh, or any other way. They come here because they are taking refuge and they are not invading the UK. They just want the safety and start a new life. And we need to make them welcome rather than the, not even second class, but the fifth class citizens, as I think that they currently are being portrayed as.
3: The largest entirely student-run charity supporting the international assistance of refugees and asylum seekers is Solidarity. It was founded in January 2017 by Cambridge undergraduate Tiara Saha Atta.
5: Yeah, so looking back, it seems ages ago now, as I've just graduated, and that was just after Michaelmas term of my first year. But essentially, I had been to Greece, I'd been volunteering on the field as an interpreter, and I was pretty appalled by what I had seen. And I guess the media lets you think that or maybe just this is how the human brain works, but what was so shocking for me seeing these reports before I went out on the field was the lack of accommodation, the lack of clothing. And so I was expecting to be really shocked and appalled by that. And I was, but what I was more appalled by was the lack of legal representation. So it seems to me that we desperately needed to have some sort of legal intervention to be able to... I, solve is a big word, but... To be able to even attempt to solve things, and that was so unbelievably neglected. I came back to Cambridge, I, def- I definitely wanted to raise money for legal aid, but I also wanted to raise awareness, and I didn't just want to raise money and send it over and be done with it, because that's not long-term or sustainable, and that's not how things get changed, and I knew that, I mean, in the scale of the world, the amount of refugee crises that exist, this would only ever really be a drop in the ocean, so I was really keen to change people's perceptions and help them to realise that the refugee crisis is much, much larger and its material manifestations and so that's how i came up with the idea of a shirt so that people would wear their morals so they'd, they'd wear their values and it would be a conversation starter and it would almost be quite an easy gateway to getting involved with the refugee crisis and thinking about it
4: alexa Netty is now the executive director for solidarity she tells us more about the organization and their plans for the upcoming term
3: so first Can you tell me about Solidarity as a charity? How does it work? Yeah, so Solidarity is an
6: international student led registered charity, and we work to do two things. We raise awareness of the refugee crisis, and we further the provision of sustainable support for refugees and asylum seekers. And the way we do that predominantly is by offering grants to NGOs working to provide predominantly legal aid and other related services to refugees and asylum seekers in Greece. In terms of the way that The charity runs itself. We have a central team of 40, and we work on the day-to-day operations of the charity as a whole. We have four teams, including outreach, fundraising, communication, and what we call team solidarity. And that division is focused on supporting all of our regional teams. And so we have regional teams of representatives at 53 and counting universities worldwide. And each of those teams operates independently with support from us.
3: Incredible numbers there. So I know your main focus is raising money for legal aid for refugees. But in March, you founded the Solidarity Emergency Fund. Can you tell me why you felt such a fund was necessary?
6: We were just highly aware that COVID was coming. Like it wasn't a if this will hit or not. It was, it was already in Greece, it was coming. And the results would just be catastrophic because Moria, which was um, Greece's largest refugee camp on the island of Lesbos, is quite small, has quite a small resident population and only has something like three ICU beds. So we just knew that the loss of life would be so unbelievable were we not to intervene with a preparedness plan. And so we opened this grant application. We took applications from NGOs working all across the world doing anything to protect refugees from COVID-19. And then we settled funding um Kitunas Healthcare, who are a wonderful medical aid NGO working in Moria. And we gave them £10,000 as part of their emergency preparedness plan.
3: So then looking at kind of your operations, we're now in a time where most operations have to be done remotely due to government guidelines. So how is Solidarity going to adapt as a result of this? And what are your plans going forward?
6: So, um... With regard to how we will adapt, we have already had to adapt with absolutely zero warning when students, all of our 550 volunteers were sent home with about 40 hours notice. Um, all of the events that they had planned were cancelled. Some of them couldn't even bring their t-shirts home on the train, they were just leaving in a panic and I think what that experience has taught me is just that there is such incredible creativity and resilience amongst the student body and we saw everything from Virtual pub quizzes to Zoom panel discussions and even people just posting posters and flyers in their windows so they could still raise awareness in their local neighbourhoods. But we are definitely looking at doing lots more online events. But as things change, we may also be able to get a few in person open air stalls going. Yeah, our t shirts have been sent to print actually as we speak, so um, our volunteers will still be able to sell those and we have a really great online system. So even if you can't physically meet your friends to hand them. T-shirts. We can do hand deliveries or postal deliveries.
3: About the T-shirts, can you tell me how you come to design the T-shirts and the images you choose? So this
6: varies year on year, but it's really important to us that the artwork depicted on our T-shirts is based on or inspired by work created by refugees and asylum seekers. And so we found designs in different places ever since the beginning with the original red square design that I know is is quite popular in Cambridge even now. But this year our upcoming 2020 design which actually came about because I um, took a trip to Thessaloniki which is in northern Greece over the summer and I went to meet with as many NGOs as I possibly could and I spoke to all of them about the work they're doing, what they wanted people to know, what the issues that they're facing are and in one particular community centre as I walked in there was a huge paper mural on the wall and It was a bit, a little bit abstract, a bit difficult to work out what it was, but I learned from the centre's manager that a group of about 12 refugees and asylum seekers who who visited the centre had all stood against this piece of paper in different poses. And they'd shaded in the outlines and the overlapping segments. And to me, it represents the diversity of the asylum-seeking community and also the connectedness of all of us. Um, I, I don't know, it felt very... Very meaningful and and so we were granted permission to put on a t-shirt and I think it will be a great tool. We really believe in our t-shirts as a really visual display of solidarity and of awareness raising in their own right. So I really hope people will find as much meaning in their designs as we have. And when are
3: those t-shirts going to be at?
6: Mid-October. Uh, very excited.
3: Organisations and charities such as Cambridge Must Act and Solidarity Stress the need for politicians and other key public figures to challenge the government's unjust and inhumane approach to refugees and asylum seekers. We spoke to Cambridge Labour MP Daniel Zeichner to get an insight into his thoughts on the UK's response to the refugee crisis.
4: We've seen that there are factions in government Um, and in relation to Cambridge that are utilising a hostile narrative to describe refugees. Where do you think this rhetoric is coming from? Do you think it's always been there? Or if not, what do you think is is the cause now?
7: Um, I'm afraid it's been there for a while. This is not new. We saw a particularly unpleasant and misleading advertisement, a billboard during the referendum campaign. And basically fear is being stoked up by people. And we should always draw a clear distinction between those who are seeking to come here for work and those who are seeking asylum. And historically, Britain's had a, a, a really proud reputation on offering asylum to people. My dad came to, to Britain to escape the Nazis. So many people in Cambridge have got had the same experience. And I believe that we've enriched our society. Sadly, this horrible rhetoric has confused a lot of people. And what it fails to understand is that Britain has international obligations under international law. And this hostile environment, whether it's for immigration or asylum, is really poisoning our reputation internationally. And of course, the end result is misery for an awful lot of people who deserve better.
4: Do you think us leaving the European Union, coupled with this kind of rhetoric that we've seen in the last months means that the UK will become less receptive to taking refugees because the international pressure isn't there as much? Well,
7: it's our choice, isn't it? I think as long as we have a Conservative government, particularly this Conservative government, and I have to say, I think many people jaw dropped when Priti Patel was appointed as Home Secretary. It wasn't that her predecessors were particularly good. I remember, the hostile environment was actually discovered Um, under Amber Rudd, her her predecessor, and was probably created, I'm afraid, in Theresa May's time. I do think that that leaving the European Union makes it harder for us to have an influence. Because, I mean, let's be honest, the European Union's record on this has been very, very mixed. It's a very, very controversial and difficult issue. Um, I have to say some countries, like Germany, stepped up during the crisis. Chancellor Merkel took quite a political hit for that. But I think there are now many, many examples of just how... People have settled down, integrated, and again, are really contributing to the German economy. So it isn't always just about um, being altruistic. Actually, people fleeing often have tremendous skills, knowledge, often very well trained, and can actually be extremely helpful to our society. So we're actually not helping ourselves, but much more important, we're not helping those people.
4: Whilst it can be beneficial to consider the benefits that refugees bring to countries, Chiara warns that we shouldn't see the term refugee as a character trait, but rather solely a legal term. I think probably the biggest myth
5: that surrounds our entire understanding of the refugee crisis is that somehow being a refugee means anything apart from your legal status, and it doesn't. Anyone in the world could be turned into a refugee if they were no longer able to live safely in their country. That's a pretty large group that falls under that definition and i think what is so damaging about that is that then people start to attribute characteristics to refugees as if they're a homogenous group right so then people start to say refugees are and then any list of things and it's not just anti-refugee individuals who do this but also pro-refugee individuals who say stuff like refugees are amazing they build societies and x y and z but that's almost not the point the point is people deserve legal protection. Someone can be a really crappy person and still deserve legal protection. Rights are not based on how noble your story is or how much you've persevered difficulty. That's not what rights are about. And although I think generally there are incredible characteristics that refugees share, such as resilience and um, a much more tolerant mindset, often because they have been on the receiving end of persecution, we're kind of strawmanning ourselves by saying, but refugees are great people. It's like, you know what, it's not the point. The point is that everyone deserves rights. Everyone deserves legal protection.
4: I was taking a look at your um, voting record and you you do seem to have previously been in support of refugee movements. So things like supporting early day motions on UN relief for Palestinian refugees, or um, reviewing the Home Office immigration policy. What do you think your role can be now for this current refugee crisis and your role as an individual MP?
7: What my biggest role is, is getting, getting a, a Labour government. Because I should just say, as a shadow minister, you can't sign EDMs, which is slightly frustrating. But what is not frustrating is being given the, the opportunity to actually be part of that Labour team that can get a change. i just say that very soon after I was elected, I was delighted to welcome Keir Starmer. We were both elected at the same time. He's, he's, he's moved a bit more quickly than I have. But, you know, he's a human rights lawyer. He cares passionately about these things. He will be sensible because, you know, frankly, it is controversial in the UK, but I think Labour will be... Certainly will abide by international law. We'll step up to our obligations, and I hope we'll go further. Nick thomas simmons as Home Secretary, I know him very well. He's a profoundly decent, principled man. He would not be standing aside in the way that Pretty Patel has done when the, the refugee camp in Lesbos is burning down. You know, so the biggest thing I can do is make sure the Labour wins the next election. In terms of individual policies, well there's always lots lots that can be discussed and thought about. And it is true that there is a discussion around the Dublin regulation and so on, because the international setup is not working. I mean, the basic, most basic thing of all is people do not want to leave their homes. They really don't. So in all those areas of the world where this conflict and the, the, the problems are being created, the biggest challenge is to make sure we find peaceful solutions to those. But, of course, this is part of the world order at the moment. It's not just a Johnson government in the UK. I'm afraid one can see the same problems with Trump in the U.S., And when you've got people who think that um, sabre-rattling and issuing threats is a way to resolve conflict, we've got a real problem. 20 years ago, I have to say, the world seemed a more optimistic place. It was a time here of a Labour government, and and there was a real optimism, I think, around the turn of the century. That's been driven back in the last few years. Whilst it
3: is true that the hostile environment policy was introduced under Theresa May and that key Labour figures such as Lord Dubbs have repeatedly pushed for a more humane approach to asylum and refugee rights, many argue that it's imperative Labour too take responsibility for the role they've played in making immigration one of Britain's most toxic political issues. Whilst Labour under Blair and Gordon Brown, often referred to as New Labour, initially adopted a compassionate approach to migration and asylum claims, for example, ditching the rules barring spouses of British citizens from joining them in the UK and scrapping restrictions discriminating against homosexual and other long-term relationships, hostile and ultimately problematic measures were soon introduced. Widespread detention centres, for example, were introduced by Blair in the 1999 Asylum Act. This act also replaced cash benefits for asylum seekers with vouchers, In 2001, New Labour's Home Office sent immigration officers to an airport in Prague to discourage mostly Roma asylum claimants from boarding planes to Britain. In 2004, the House of Lords noted that this policy amounted to inherent and systemic racism. As asylum claims began to increase in 2002, in great part due to the Iraq war, Blair announced that he would halve the number of asylum seekers in the UK by September that same year. This commitment suggested that Labour believed and wanted to promote the idea that at least half of all asylum claims were invalid.
7: Well, I think there's a clear difference between the Labour years and the more recent times. And I have to say, I see it in my surgery almost every week and my casework bears it out. The Home Office is, I would say, deliberately obstructive. And obviously I wasn't an MP during that period, but from what I hear from people, it changed. It absolutely changed. And yes, of course, there's always more things that you can do when you look back. I would say that that period was quite tricky. You know, we'd, we'd just gone past 20 years of 9-11. And there was a, quite a strong international fear at that time and a worry and an anxiety. And I think all governments had to respond to that. But I, I feel very strongly that Labour's record is markedly different from the record of the Conservatives. The opposition, week in, week out, is putting on pressure in Parliament. People like Lord Dubs in the House of Lords are tremendously effective. What I would say is it needs individuals to write to their MPs. There's no shortage of Conservative MPs in, a, in and around Cambridgeshire. And we've got some senior people, you know, Steve Barclay is Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Lucy Fraser is a Justice Minister, for goodness sake. You know, there are people here who should be put under pressure. We've seen that we can push the government back on things. We saw that with school meals over the summer. We've seen that the range of issues, where even with the majority of 80, public pressure has, has forced them into U-turns. Well, I, I'm slightly disappointed there hasn't been a bigger public response, actually, to the, to the fire in Lesbos. But you know, we, we do know that, I'm afraid, in the UK, there are different views on these subjects. So it's really important that decent people stand up when there are demonstrations, join the demonstrations, obviously in a safe way at the moment, and keep up the pressure. Because in the end, politics isn't just about Parliament. It's a mixture of inside and outside. I'm, a, I'm a, a, a democratic socialist. I do actually think the way to change things is through the ballot box. But put pressure on, always.
4: What are your hopes for the future?
0: I like to think of myself as a very optimistic person. So, some point in the future, I really hope to see people being very accommodating and inclusive of refugees. I just don't want the word refugees and migrants to be such a taboo word, basically. I think the day we manage to sort of de-taboo these two words is the day we know we have achieved everything and we have managed to amalgate and include everyone in the mainstream society. I think that is my dream, as far-fetched as it might sound today.
1: What we've seen with the recent channel crossings is a deep, deep lack of generosity from the UK and a lack of awareness of what the rest of the world is doing for refugees. I think 4,000 or just over 4,000 people have crossed the channel this year to arrive to the UK. And this has been painted as a as UK's refugee crisis. And this is really, really appalling because actually here in the UK, we, we host less than 0.5% of the world's refugee population. Whereas countries like Lebanon, which are um, undergoing their own very, very significant problems at the moment with inflation and obviously the the massive explosion in Beirut, they host, I think, a million refugees. With regards to the fire in Moria, there's been absolutely no response from the UK government. And I think this indicates that we think that since we've left the EU officially, the EU's problems are not our problems. And it really demonstrates how the, the direction that UK policy is turning, and it's basically inwards very internal. It's interesting
3: though because as you say when you think that we've only got 0.5% of the world refugees and yet I think the narrative painted is very much that refugees have got their eyes set on the UK.
1: Yeah I mean it's it's a total lie and most people that are coming over are desperate to come over because they have some sort of link to the UK. So they have family here, uh, they speak English and they don't speak French or German and you know a lot of people speaking English because they come from an ex English colony, an ex British colony, which we imposed the English language on them, and then to suggest that you know it's not a valid reason for for your refugees to come to the UK because they speak English also forgets our colonial past.
3: What's one thing that you wish people or the government in Britain knew with regards to refugees?
2: I'm sure that they know it, but I would like for them to show it that refugees are normal people who deserve a second chance and who deserve respect. I would like to see the rhetoric, the language being used, being different because those people are not invading the UK. And let's make this human. Let's help each other. And refugees have lots of potential like everyone else, but they desperately need support. And for anyone who is listening, if you do have a chance to work with any local charity or national charities, I would really encourage you to do so.
3: Thank you for listening. Check out our article on the Varsity website for information on how to get involved in the charities and organisations we spoke to.
4: Thank you to our contributors, Milan Rucinich, Saraya, Cambridge Mass founder Tigse-Louis-Patic, Tiara Sahar and Alexa Netty from Solidarity and Cambridge MP Daniel Zeichner.
3: Thanks also to our production team, Alex Oxford, Matthew Cavallini, Matthew Jeffries, Georgia Goble, Tilly Head, Cameron White, Alicia Gaunt, Kate Pruden, Rachel Mullerley, Sorrel Fenlon and Thea Melton.
4: We'll be back next week.
3: Subscribe to our podcast
4: and visit our Facebook page where you can see upcoming
0: episodes and leave any thoughts.